and welcome to Stories from the Door, a collection of articles from Door County Living Magazine read aloud for you. I'm Andrew Clyden, and today we have a bunch of really great stories, a couple quintessential Wisconsin stories, uh, cheese curds and the Packers. Miles Danhausen is going to take you down memory lane with a story about the omnibus. And then I have an article about Robert Noble and his horrific death-defying journey across death's door. All that coming up on Stories from the Door. If you spend enough off-season happy hours at the Bayside or AC Tap or work enough shifts at Husby's or the Bowl, you'll hear a lot of stories about the old days of Northern Door. And those old days will almost always be better than today. You'll hear about a time before people realized that it might be a good idea to be able to breathe the air inside a building, when many a man's go-to move was to offer to light a woman's cigarette at the bar, and the mark of a good bartender was keeping a clean ashtray. You'll hear people talk about crazy nights dancing at the Florian in Bailey's Harbor and wonder if they're talking about the same place you're picturing in your mind. You'll hear about the old husbies, when the bar was half the size and beer was a quarter. You'll hear about the bands at The Rock, version 1.0, and about the lean of the Peninsula Pub before the fire straightened it all out. And eventually, they'll tell you about a place called The Omnibus, which sounds like anything but a bar, but was that and many other things from 1972 through the early 1980s. The Omnibus was the place to go, recalled Digger DeGroot, who was a young actor and bartender when a hippie named Steve Kastner bought the old Norski Ridge and opened the Omnibus there in 1972. It was very 70s, ladies in long dresses, guys with long hair, kind of a communal feel, Digger said. It was located at the bottom of the ski hill, about a mile south of Fish Creek, where the Little Sweden condo development stands today. Kastner bought the ski hill and lodge out of foreclosure to house the bicycle and cross-country ski shop he started out on County Road F in Fish Creek and began booking jazz bands there. That's what I wanted to do, Kastner told me, but nobody else seemed to go for it. So he switched to popular music and began booking up-and-coming acts from Chicago, Milwaukee, and Madison. The scene created in this bar at the bottom of the hill and the edge of the woods was perfectly in tune with a revolution taking place in the peninsula's art scene. Artists, hippies, and adults frustrated with the corporate grind were leaving the nation's cities and going back to the land. For a few hundred in the upper Midwest, that meant going to Door County. Many of them soon packed the omnibus, in awe of the talent Kastner put on stage nearly every night of the week. Steve was way ahead of his time bringing the quality of live music to Door County that he was bringing, said Steve Glegg, an omnibus regular at the time. An upstart band from Milwaukee called the Bodines played there. Kegbelly got wild there, and Sweet Bottom would rattle the place with the occasional appearance from Daryl Stumer, the touring guitarist from the Phil Collins band Genesis. A young Pat McDonald played early gigs there, as did Uncle Vinty and the Ex-Cleavers, Corky Siegel, and local legends like the Booze Brothers Review, Marvin and the Dogs, and Tony Brown. But before them all, Sigmund Snowpeck gave Kastner's vision legitimacy. He was one of the reasons the place survived, Kastner said. We played The Rock in 1967, and we were just struck by the beauty of the place and the mindset of the people in Door County, Snowpeck said. When The Rock closed, we were looking for another place to play up there, and we found the Omnibus. It was a tremendous place to play original music. People were really open-minded. You had all these young artists and creativity. It was a magical thing. We looked forward to it as one of the highlights of our year. Snowpeck wasn't the only musician in awe of the place. Soon, major acts from throughout Wisconsin and the Chicago area were drawn to the peninsula, pulled here in part by the meandering journey. Back then, there was no highway, Snowpeck said. 
It could take five hours to get here from Milwaukee. You had to go through all of these little towns, Sheboygan, Two Rivers, Algoma. The remoteness of it made, made it feel so special. It was really like going to another country. At the end of the road, they found a ramshackle combination of buildings pieced together through the years. The old ski chalet was attached to an A-frame, originally built as a roadside sign. That became a defining characteristic of the bar. Inside were cozy nooks, walled with rough-hewn cedar and warmed by a wood-burning stove, and in back, soaring windows framed the ski hill behind the bar, ringed by a massive deck. There was no other place like it, Glabe said. It was a gathering place when other bars were drinking places. There were plants, big windows, a lot of natural light. You'd hang out playing backgammon and risk. Unlike many bars that earned their loyalists by never changing, the Omnibus earned its patrons by virtue of being a perennial work in progress. Kastner was an owner long on ideas and a little bit short on execution. Steve was always adding something, Glaive says, doubtful that it was always permitted. But in 1970s Door County, there weren't many who cared if it was. He always had another idea. He was a guy who was good at a lot of things, but not truly great at them. I moved here from Illinois right out of college in 1970, Kastner said. I was a summer kid up till then and I just wanted to live here year-round. The first couple of years, the snow was up to our eyebrows. One year, I lived on less than $500. We grew all of our food, rode our bikes. It was a whole hippie dream. I had no plan to be a businessman. Kastner was this hippie selling bikes out of a barn in Fish Creek, as he remembered. Cycling was gaining popularity, and Kastner said his lightweight European 10-speeds were flying out the door. The barn was located outside of town, though, and he wanted to move his business to the main drag. But it was the bar that took off, and became the focus of the operation. In addition to live music, he brought in outlandish stand-up comedy acts. At one point, he created an amphitheater in the Valley of the Ski Hill, where Snowpeck debuted his first rock opera. And years before cross-country ski trails zigzagged through the county state parks, Kastner built a one-mile loop, lighted cross-country ski trail on his land. Herbie Hart was the first guy who thought to use the old horse trails for cross-country skiing, Kastner said. Back then, it was maybe me, Al Johnson, and Roy Lucas who had cross-country skis. Soon, the barflies were stepping into them too. You'd have a beer, then go out and ski a lap in the night, Glaive says. It was incredible. In the summer, Kastner brought pro cycling to the county for races and organized impromptu local races as well, years before anyone used the phrase silent sports as a marketing tagline. The innovations earned a dedicated following, but not everyone loved the place. After a couple of seasons, Kastner sold the unprofitable ski hill, marking the end of the Norski Ridge ski hill and earning the ire of many locals. It was tough to make money on a ski hill back then, DeGroote recalls. Snowmaking equipment wasn't what it is today, and the hill faced the wrong way. It was designed facing west, so the snow melted every day. Plus, there wasn't much open up here back then besides the bayside and the gas station. There weren't too many winter visitors. After Labor Day, you could sit naked in front of the bayside and nobody would notice. Probably half the county resented him for closing the hill, Glaive says. People hated me because I was the guy who tore Norski Ridge down, Kastner recalls, but it was never profitable. I didn't want to sell the lift but it was the only way to survive. Had the hill faced east, and had it lasted another 10 years to see the explosion of snowboarding in the winter and mountain biking in the summer, perhaps it would still be ferrying people up the hill. Door County will never know. It's a testament to what did survive, however, that so many still look back on the omnibus so fondly. While many of Kastner's sidelights have faded from memory, the bar and the wild nights had there have not. It was a pretty loose affair as far as permissiveness, Kastner recalled. As long as people did whatever they did discreetly, we didn't police them. In nine years, we didn't have one bar fight. There would be 300, 400 people dancing, partying, and at the end of the night, somehow people got home safely. It was such a laid-back place, Glaive says. And as much as I respect and love our local musicians, it was really incredible to be sitting in a Fish Creek bar and see the music he would bring up here. But as it goes for so many bars, the glory days didn't last. 
By the early 1980s, the bar scene was changing. When Reagan became president, the country became a lot more conservative, Kastner said. The whole culture changed, and the peninsula was changing too, becoming more polished with less room for quirks and characters. In the midst of this, Kastner battled his own personal hurdles. My whole life blew up in 1982, he said. My mom died of cancer. My dad, who was my business partner, was lost. My second wife was having an affair with my bartender. The omnibus ended with the end of an era, DeGroote said. Cross-country skiing had been huge, but it died for a while. Steve turned off some locals when he shut down the ski hill. Bands got expensive, and the party atmosphere changed. By the fall of 1982, Kastner and his dad decided to sell, and a month later, they accepted an offer. The omnibus existed for a couple of more years, but it wasn't the same, for better or worse. Eventually, the building was offered to the Gibraltar Fire Department to burn in a training exercise, and with it, a remnant of Door County lure was gone. DeGroote said the demise of the omnibus left a huge hole in the music scene for years. It was sad to see it go, Snowpeck said, pausing. I still miss it. So do a generation of folks who remember a bar that was very much a reflection of the changing sensibility of the peninsula. Lost Icon, The Omnibus, by Miles Danhausen Jr. A gathering of green and gold-clad Packer fans meet on a brisk October morning at the Sturgeon Bay home of Brian Frisk and Jen Jorns. It's game day in Wisconsin. The Green Bay Packers, otherwise known as we to Wisconsinites, are playing the Jacksonville Jaguars at noon at Lambeau Field. Frisk loads a 15-passenger 1992 Dodge Ram conversion van, the Pack Van, an epic Packers-themed vehicle painted in green and gold, layered by Packers bumper stickers and insignias, with a silver grill and blue plastic cooler, while Jorns greets friends and family as they pile in. On the open road, cans of Mountain Dew click open. Granola bars and donuts dusted with powder sugar are exchanged as chatter fills the interior lined with gold pom-poms and a string of light-up Green Bay Packers helmets. Soon, Lambeau Field comes into view. This is the best feeling ever, says passenger Brett Anschutz as Green and Yellow by Lil Wayne thumps in the background. When the van parks in its designated parking spot, just kitty corner from the historic stadium, veteran van riders do what needs to be done. Cheesehead sporting Amanda Weisgerber and Emily Jorns Frisk unload snacks while Adam Nelson, appropriately wearing a Jordy Nelson jersey, outfits the corners of the van with Packers flags. Shannon Wadier unloads Packers-themed fold-out chairs while Frisk, after showing off glimmering replica Packers Super Bowl rings, sets up the grill. I guess it starts way back, says Frisk, holding a half-eaten brat while speaking of his family's Packers tradition. My dad had tickets in Section 104 and took me to games when I was a kid, and Jenny's grandparent was a Dick Weisgerber. Weisgerber, who played for the Packers from 1938 to 1942, left his tickets to his family, including Jorn's. And so when Jenny and I met about 15 years ago, we kept the tradition rolling, he says. The couple began attending games together, along with many family and friends. We would always go to all of the games together and sometimes take two, three vehicles because we couldn't pack everyone into one vehicle, explains Frisk. And we always had to discuss who's bringing the grill, 
Who's bringing the food? Where are we parking? Opportunity came six years ago, while Frisk, a registered land surveyor, conducted a survey for a client. He had this plain van that he was getting rid of. He owed me for the survey, so I said, I'll take the van off your hands. Smiling as he points his brat at the van, he continues, and we made this thing. Outfitting the van for its chief purpose, to transport Packer game-goers to and from Door County to Lambeau Field, began with the exterior. My neighbor, Brian Napton, painted vehicles for fun, as kind of a hobby, says Frisk. I went to him one day and said, could you paint it green and gold? Napton painted the exterior and continues to freshen up the bodywork, so it doesn't rust away to nothing, says Frisk, who also credits Jeff's repair in Sturgeon Bay for keeping up on the exteriors, while family, friends, and a few Packers players slowly built up the inside. Jane City, from Bailey's Harbor, sewed the seat covers, AstroTurf was laid on the floor, the windows were darkened, Packer signs and stickers were added, and over time, an assortment of Packers players have gladly autographed the van, including Colin Cole, Lynn Dickey, and Dave Robinson. Frisk also convinced Clay Matthews to sign the van in Sturgeon Bay. Clay Matthews was at Jim Olson Motors, and you could bring one item to have him sign. So I stood in line for about an hour and waited until it was my turn. Their conversation went something like this. I brought my one item, but I can't bring it in the building. What do you mean? It's too big to bring in the building. Well, just go get it. No, you don't understand. I can't bring it through the door. Matthews stepped outside, saw the van, and was like, wow, this is awesome, says Frisk. We all get to enjoy it, says Jorns, who waitresses at Bailey's Harbor Cornerstone Pub. The pack van allows everyone to travel together safely and have a designated driver. The memories the van represents mean a great deal not only to its owners, but also fellow riders, such as Amanda Weisgerber, who married Jorns' cousin, Ryan Weisgerber, outside Lambeau Field. I married into this wonderful Packers tradition, she smiles. It was great. We surprised our parents, and the van picked us up at our house, and we came down and got married on a Thursday. She has enjoyed many Sundays outside Lambeau. I just really appreciate everything that Jen and Brian put into these days because they don't forget any details, from the green and gold silverware and plastic cups to so much more. The pack van has also received a great deal of attention from strangers and celebrities. Dan Jensen, a speed skater, he wanted his picture taken by our van, says Frisk, who also tells of Cuba Gooding Jr. smiling and waving at picture-taking onlookers from the passenger seat of the vehicle, spotting the van and bringing out his camera to take a picture. I personally witnessed this, laughs Frisk. I was like, oh my God, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s got a picture of my van. The van caught national spotlight with a segment on NBC Nightly News while in Dallas for the 2010 Super Bowl game. They did a story about the terrible weather on the way to Dallas, explains Frisk. They interviewed us, and they interviewed some Pittsburgh Steelers fans who made the terrible journey across Oklahoma, which was an ice-covered nightmare. When you see the snowplows tipped over in the ditch, it's really a good indication not to be on the road. But smaller acts of kindness and attention please Frisk and Jorns, who hope to brighten the lives of somebody whose future might not be that great, says Frisk. Though the van is used to attend games for family and friends only, pretty much any time anyone asks for the van for a charitable thing, we bring it right on down. As far as the pack van's future, we're going to keep her rolling, says Frisk. We got a quarter million miles on it now and a brand new fresh motor. So I'm thinking we should get a quarter million miles out of it yet. Mm-hmm.
That was the Pac-Van Transports Game Goers, Carrie's Memories, written by Sally Slattery for Door County Living Magazine, published on November 15, 2012. To see pictures of the Pac-Van, check out the article posted at doorcountypulse.com. Born and raised in Wisconsin, I've eaten a fair amount of fried cheese in my 27 years. Working in restaurants in Door County over the course of many summers, I have also served a large number of cheese curds to folks visiting our beloved peninsula. So I've heard tourists ask the million-dollar question a number of times. What are cheese curds? Cheese curds, or the curdled parts of milk, get battered and deep-fried. They are traditionally served with a side of ranch, is my standard reply. Brian Renard, owner of Renard's Cheese and home to some of the best fresh curds in the county, elaborates. We get all the milk for our cheese from about 24 patrons in Door and Kiwani County, Renard said. My milk hauler is actually my brother-in-law, so it's truly a family operation. My dad bought this building in 1961. He started making cheese when he was 14. The factory was already here. There's been a cheese factory on this corner for over 100 years. We've been here over 50 years. According to Renard, in the last 10 years, fried cheese curds really started taking off. The largest demand used to come from Doran Kiwani counties, but it was only a matter of time before the beloved cheese curd took hold in some of Green Bay's restaurants. After all, what better snack for a cheese head? What we take in today, we make tomorrow. In the morning, we pump it through the pasteurizer. Once we put the milk in the vat, we inoculate it with a starter culture. It takes about 45 minutes to develop a 15,000-pound vat. Cheese curds naturally occur in the cheese-making process, and these curds are skimmed off the top while the rest gets turned into cheddar cheese. Making the curds takes about four hours. Renard said, out of a 15,000-pound vat of milk, we'll get 1,500 pounds of cheese. That's about a 10% yield, which is good. There's a lot of whey, but we sell that to another processor who makes it into cow feed, so nothing goes to waste. To ensure that your cheese curds are the best and squeakiest, they can possibly be, make sure to buy them fresh. You can't walk away, otherwise the cheese will get too hot and push right out to the breading, explained Renard. You don't have to pay as much attention to cheese curds that are double-breaded. Ours are single-breaded, and they have a different flavor. You taste more of the cheese curd. Up at the Wickman House in Ellison Bay, owners Mike Holmes and Joe Farenkrug, alongside head chef Mike Cheslock, are up to something a little different. They offer goat cheese curds as an appetizer. We wanted to put curds on our menu for a while, Baron Krug said. We feature a few other goat cheese items. We serve award-winning Evalon on our cheese plate. We started to wonder what it would be like to make goat cheese curds. These fresh cheese curds come from LeClaire Farms in Chilton, Wisconsin, and are beer-battered before going into the fryer. They're not quite as firm as a normal curd, and you don't necessarily get the same squeakiness, Cheslock said. As for the homemade beer batter, it's Wisconsin. The taste and texture of the curds is a little different. The beer adds a hint of flavor to the batter and complements the goat cheese. Over at the Wild Tomato in Fish Creek, Britt and Sarah Unkfer use cheese curds as a topping on their green and gold pizza. The flavor of the fresh curds complements the roasted chicken, bacon, grilled broccoli, and spinach on this fabulous za. We were coming up with a donation creation, a monthly special pizza that raises money for a local charity, and we thought it might be fun to put curds on a pizza. Sarah Uncafer said. 
We also needed to find a way to utilize all the curds that were too little to batter and fry. So they became the gold in the green and gold pizza. The wild tomatoes, delicious hand-battered cheese curds are some of the best in the county. When you freeze something and then throw it in the fryer, it's going to have different characteristics. Nothing's ever frozen in our process, said Uncafer. The curds are squeaky when we get them in. We dip them in buttermilk, toss them in flour, and then coat them in a light tempura batter before throwing them into the fryer. You want them to come out golden brown. So be sure to get a taste of our local authentic cuisine and eat some fresh cheese curds, fried or on a pizza, the next time you visit the peninsula. This regional treat won't let you down and may become a favorite Door County indulgence. That was Cheese Curds, a Wisconsin Delicacy by Brittany Jort or Door County Loving, November 15th, 2012. On a cold winter morning at the very end of December in the year 1863, a man named Robert Noble pushed a small wooden boat he had borrowed from an 11-year-old boy into the waters off the shore of Washington Island. Little did he or the boy know that that trip, what was expected to be a relatively easy jaunt from Washington Island to the Door County Peninsula, would forever alter Noble's life and provide us with a legend almost too horrific to tell. Robert Noble's winter voyage has sent a chill down our collective spine for more than 150 years. Artists have captured it in song and sketch, and generations of parents and grandparents have repeated it to wide-eyed children round late-night campfires. It is a tale that tells us something about the land we belong to and who we are, or who we might have been asked to be in harder, more interesting times. So put another log on the fire, tuck your feet under a warm blanket, and pour yourself a glass of scotch or a cup of hot tea. And thank your lucky stars that you are who you are, and that the fates didn't name you Robert Noble, and deposit you at the threshold to death's door on December 30th, 1863. All epic tales worth their salt have an element of romance, and this one is no exception. Robert Noble visited Washington Island during the Christmas holidays to see a sweetheart, and, if things went well, to woo a wife. Accounts vary on the success of this objective. Some claim he found the woman he desired already engaged to another man. Others say the visit was a happy one. What is known for sure is that he left the island, be it with a heavy or hopeful heart, on Wednesday, December 30th, in a boat he borrowed from Albert Kalmbach, the younger brother of the woman he had come to see. In a letter Kalmbach wrote decades later, he recalls, It was a calm morning, but cold and clear. He started across the door in my little skiff. My father objected to letting the skiff go, but I interceded to let him have it. Noble was, by all accounts, a handsome and strong man. Six feet tall and 220 pounds, he was 25 years old when he pushed himself from Washington Island's south shore into the icy waters of Lake Michigan to return to the mainland approximately four and a half miles away. The safety of Detroit Harbor receded with each pull he made on the oars. Had his journey traversed other waters, he most likely would have arrived safely. Alas, he was crossing death's door. Historian H.R. Holland wrote in Old Peninsula Days, It is not long, this door of death, nor wide. It is merely a passage between the tip end of the Door County Peninsula and the islands beyond. But in this strait are often met strong currents and fierce winds running counter to each other. 
Never is it entirely safe. Shifting currents undermine the ice unceasingly. Where the ice may be two feet thick in the morning, the waves may wash in the evening. Noble initially made good progress through the chunks of ice that had jostled and bumped against his flat-bottom boat, but as he approached Plum Island about halfway to his destination, the ice fused, creating an impenetrable barrier. With much difficulty, he pulled ashore on Plum Island, hoping that the wind would shift and that the passage he needed to get to the mainland would open once again. Snow was beginning to fall and the temperature to drop. On one of the darkest days of the year, daylight was diminishing quickly. None of this would have mattered had he had seen a friendly beacon of light from a warm cottage. Unfortunately, Plum Island was, and remains today, uninhabited. Robert Noble was alone. The best he could do was find an abandoned fishing hut. Although the hut had no roof, door, or windows, its walls provided some shelter from the wind, and he managed to build a small fire. He worked to keep it going as the snowfall increased, but by morning his fire was out. With ice now encapsulating the island, he resigned himself to waiting out the storm and went in search of a better shelter. The only other option was a derelict lighthouse, of which only the cellar and a chimney remained. We know from weather data that temperatures all across Wisconsin on this last day of December 1863 were 20 to 30 degrees below zero. It was in this climate that Noble struggled to start a fire in the chimney. Using his very last match, he succeeded. The fire caught and generated the first warmth and only hope he'd felt all day. This hope died quickly, however, when the fire melted a block of snow stuck in the chimney. In Holland's words, there was a rush and a tumble and his fire was buried under a heap of snow. It was a most depressing blow. Ever resourceful, Noble attempted to use his revolver to start scraps of his coat on fire, but was unsuccessful. He spent the night without food, heat, or light, constantly moving to keep himself from freezing. Then dawned the first day of the new year. Holland recounts, January 1st, 1864, old settlers have not yet, after a lapse of almost a hundred years, forgotten the intense cold of that day. Tales are told of water freezing by the side of the heated stoves, of the impossibility of keeping warm in snug beds, of cattle freezing to death in their stalls. It is remembered as the coldest day in the history of Door County. With no food and two nights without sleep, Noble knew his only option for survival was to leave Plum Island. He managed to launch his boat into the icy slurry and row a quarter of a mile back to Washington Island. Once again, though, he was stopped by solid ice. And once again, he showed his resourcefulness. Tearing planks from the skiff seats, he strapped them to his feet as primitive snowshoes and took hold of a cedar pole he had scavenged from the island. With his weight distributed, he was able to take a few steps, but then he plunged into the icy water. The pole he carried kept him from total submersion. Not able to kick the boards off his feet, he held onto the pole and reached into the water with his pocket knife and cut them loose. He managed to make his way back to his skiff where he stamped and kicked to return the circulation to his ice-covered limbs. He then tore more boards from the boat and attempted to lie on them, pulling himself towards his goal. This time, he fell completely underwater. A newspaper account of the story written in 1903 quoted Noble saying, I was a good swimmer and able to remain underwater for quite a while when I was forced to, and this no doubt saved my life. I managed to get back to the surface again through the hole I had fallen, although it proved a terrible job to do this. He then abandoned the boards, and instead of trying to stay on top of the ice, he swam through it, 
hacking away the thinner areas to create his own passage. Holin says that Noble was an animated iceberg, half swimming, half crawling by the help of his elbows. What takes only moments to recount took hours in real time. Eventually, Noble pulled himself back through Detroit Harbor to Washington Island and to the door of a fisherman's cottage. Noble said, I did not stop at the Kalmbach house, but went directly to that of D.H. Rice, which was then occupied by his son-in-law, Siren Keir. I got there about dark and rapped on the door. It was opened by the man of the house who appeared to be scared at the sight that met him. Noble enjoined Keir to get tubs of cold water in which he would soak his frostbitten limbs as soon as the ice-encrusted clothing was cut away. That accomplished, Noble slept for the first time in days. In many ways, it was then his lasting trouble began. While Noble slept, a well-meaning neighbor stopped in and convinced Keir to submerge Noble's limbs in kerosene, a new mineral oil that had just been delivered to the island. He theorized that the kerosene would pull the frost out of Noble's body. With a freezing point well below that of water, however, kerosene had the opposite effect, and Noble woke to find his limbs swollen and black beyond healing. Noble was taken from Detroit Harbor on the south side of Washington Island to Washington Harbor on the north, where he was looked after for months by kind neighbors, including the Washington Harbor storekeeper Bert Ranney. During these months, Noble's fingers fell off one by one, and the flesh peeled from his legs. Albert Kambach recounted in his letter that a man named Davis severed the cords on his legs and fingers with a penknife. With no physician on the island and most able-bodied men off fighting in the Civil War, there were few to help him. Eventually, in June of 1864, word came that Dr. Farr from the southern part of Wisconsin would be visiting Sturgeon Bay to negotiate the purchase of a sawmill. Noble was taken by steamer to the Cedar Street House, a guest house on what is now 3rd Avenue in Sturgeon Bay, owned by D.H. Rice, the same gentleman who owned the fishing cottage on Washington Island. Noble stated, Dr. Farr readily agreed to perform the job, but he said he did not have the proper instruments. He managed to pick up a few things in Green Bay, but when it came to a saw, the only thing he had was such as the butchers use. I was put under chloroform, and in due time, both feet were removed about midway between the knees and ankles. The fingers needed but little attention as the ends had long since dropped off on their own accord. Noble recovered from surgery and was fitted with artificial limbs. In time, he resumed his well-drilling business and then operated the first commercial mechanically-propelled ferry in Door County, the Ark, built in 1874. In 1883, Noble built a larger 74-foot ferry, the Robert Noble, to carry people and goods between Sawyer and Sturgeon Bay the east and west side of what is now Sturgeon Bay. He was put out of the ferry business in 1888 by construction of the Sturgeon Bay Toll Bridge the year before. Reports of Noble's later years vary. One account says he married a woman named Elizabeth Armburst in 1883 and built a home on the west side of the bay. According to his obituary, published in the Door County Advocate in November of 1918, he died at the Poor House in Wausau. It goes on to state, Mr. Noble was one of the early residents of the county and was well known for a perilous trip across death's door, which he made in the early days. He is survived by one son and a brother, George Noble. The burial was held here yesterday. The site of his grave is not known.
Wallace Stegner once wrote, No place is a place until the things that have happened in it are remembered in history, ballads, yarns, legends, or monuments. If this is so, Door County and Death's Door are what they are, in part because of the grit, fortitude, courage, and tenacity of a man named Robert Noble. That was A Man Named Robert Noble and His Death-Defying Journey Across Death's Door by Laurel Hauser, Door County Living Magazine, November 17th, 2016. These stories and more will be available in this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse, available throughout Door County. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.